Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Hello everybody and welcome along to another long one here on the Radio Shore Limited Network. Now cast your mind back, those of you with decent memories, to 2012, or at least just before the 2012 season. Ollie Gavin came over to uh, the then still relatively new Hindhoff Towers, uh, Mark II, uh, sat down, ate me out of cake and we talked about his career. Uh, which took us up to just as he was signing for Corvette. Now, in that interview, which is still available on the archive, he does tell us what his favourite Corvette memory was. We won't go into that right now because you can go and listen to it. But we thought it'd be a good idea, uh, with the benefit of a few more years and a few more wins behind Mr Gavin uh, for Corvette, that we revisit Ollie Gavin's career and pick up effectively where we left off. And that's exactly what we're going to do, as you can hear. We're at a racetrack, we're at Master Raceway Laguna Sega. And actually, Ollie, that's fairly significant because this is the place that you came to at the end of 2001, uh, having had the tap on the shoulder from Ron Fellows at Watkins Glen behind the podium. Yeah. You should speak to Doug Feehan, said Ron. And so you came out here to this very track and fixed up a meeting with Doug Feehan. I bet he was delighted to see you, because it was one of only a handful of races that year that Corvette didn't win and was won by uh, Celine and your Sebring teammates, Conrad and Borcella. So you were a bit of a harbinger of doom there. Um, so you got here. Had you been had you been to Laguna Seca before when you came here to, to meet Doug Feehan? I hadn't, actually. This is my first time here, and... Um I actually came here with uh, with John Field, mm. and I was driving the uh, his Lola uh, B2K10, and um, we I don't think we had a particularly good weekend. But my mind wasn't necessarily so much on that; it was more on uh, trying to secure the future with Corvette Racing. And yeah, I came here. I had a very good meeting with with, with Doug. It went exceptionally well, and he pretty much offered me the contract there and then. And um, you know, I was then pretty much from then onwards a Corvette driver. He did say to me that weekend, we can't sort of rubber stamp it. Gary Pratt has to see you driving one of his cars. And we'll set up a test at Sebring. Their sort of standard November Sebring test date I was then invited to at the end of 2001. Uh, so I went to that. Um, I drove uh, the number four car um, with uh, Kelly Collins and Andy Pilgrim and uh, worked with all the guys on the number four car. Uh, the test went really well, really nicely, really good. Really enjoyed working with everybody there. The, the engineer, Joe Kiefer, was exceptional. Um, and uh, you know, I got, just not, got to know all the guys, and it was just a real sort of journey, the beginning of this great big journey uh, that I've been going down with Corvette Racing. And uh, was, was there any sense, even at that time, Ollie, of how big a move that was going to be for you at that time in your career, at that time in your life? No, no, I really had no sense. It was, it was, I was very much existing on sort of one race to another, you know, one, uh, you, you know, maybe one half of a season to another half of a season. And, you know, the stuff with John Field had gone well and we'd had some race victories in, in 2001. I'd gone very well with Celine and the races that I'd done with them. We'd had a victory at, at Sebring. We'd had um, a pretty good run at Le Mans. We got, I got pole position there at Le Mans. And, you know, it was uh, it was sort of shaping up pretty good, but I really needed to secure that big uh, factory deal if I could. And this was really, the door was well and truly kicked open by, by, by Ron and then by then having the meeting with Doug and then doing the test at Sebring. And, you know, once I'd done that, Gary saw me drive the car for like 10 or 15 laps and Feehan said to me, yeah, you got the job, <laughs> you know, absolutely. So that was November 2001? Yes, November 2001. And then, and so then I was signed up to drive on the number three car with Ron Fellows and Johnny O'Connell and I was going to do all of the endurance races with them. And so, um, 
you know, it, it was, I was very much the new boy. I was very much the young lad on the team. And I was just sitting there watching and learning and trying to figure out how to fit in. And yeah. What, what was it like going to a team like Pratt & Miller for Corvette Racing after, and with no disrespect to other people you'd driven for, but when we talked last time, there was not a lot of happiness in some of the things that you did, um, parts, problems, issues with teams. And you go to Corvette Racing and Pratt and & Miller, which must have been night and day, was it? Yeah, it was. I mean, at that point, they were a really good step forward from anybody that I'd raced with in sports car racing. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I really felt that I was finding a home and I felt that, yeah, the operation and the team and the way that things were done was, you know, first class. And, and you know, we were able to go testing. There was, you know, good, a good budget for things. There was, you got plenty of time in the car. Uh, they were very focused on, on on developing you as much as they possibly could as a driver and trying to develop the car as much as they possibly could. And, you know, it was... Um, everything that you were sort of hoping for as a factory driver and 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 you could tell me you could really get your teeth into and we went to some you know you get to go to some fantastic tracks some great races and uh you know i was relishing every bit of it but i had no i i i was very much taking it you know one step at a time one race at a time and and at that point every single corvette racing driver was on a one-year contract And that, and that was it. And you were fighting for your contract. And you were only contracting two or two, 2002, for the endurance races, not for the full LMS season as it was at, at that time. Yep, yep, exactly. And so, I mean, I, I had so no pressure then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was, it was, it was sort of very much like that. And 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 I, I suppose at the time I was I was this sort of fresh faced boy, and I was really trying hard, and I was I was maybe eager, very eager to please, and and uh, you know I was wanting to integrate myself, and you know I remember there being races and sort of middle of the year and I was phoning up Johnny and asking him th- how it was going and I could sense from Johnny he was sort of like what, what, why are you calling me and, and, and what do you want this is O'Connell you're talking about yeah yeah this is Johnny O'Connell and he was sort of going well, why, why are you why are you phoning me up and what are you what, are you trying to steal my seat you know he got that definitely got that sort of I- impression and, and I was just trying to figure out how I fitted in and then by the end of two, 2002 Feehan sat me down at uh, Rider Lancer. We were staying at the Hampton Inn in Buford. And I remember him coming to me and saying, Ollie, we want you to be the lead driver on the number four car. And, um, you know, we want... Did you actually run around the room with your shirt above your head as if you'd scored the winning goal in a World Cup final at that point? Or did you very coolly sit there and just nod and go, oh, OK. <laughs> I, was, I was on the cooler side, but I was jumping up and down inside. And, <laughs> and so I... I, you know, I, 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 it was what I'd been aiming for, what I'd, I'd wanted all of my racing career, and um, you know, to be offered offered it, and to be offered sort of like to be leading the number four car was amazing. And I knew that it was going to be a, a big challenge. Um, you know, I I wasn't entirely sure how it was going to work. Um, you know, I was going to be partnered either with with Kelly Collins or Andy Pilgrim. And I didn't quite know how that was all going to function and work together for the, for the 2003 season, uh, but Feehan made it work, and and uh, you know we, we 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 got it going, and we won a number of races through 2003. But you know we didn't win any of the big ones, and and um, then things at the end of 2003 got moved on, and I was then parted with Olivier um, from 2004 onwards. You talked in the last interview about how. Corvette were very good at being able to look at talent, not necessarily um, bringing them up themselves, but looking at people who were driving for their competitors, which Olivia had done, which effectively you had done as well, and co-opting them into the team. The skill of that, of course, is ensuring that you keep the team dynamic when you've got people who have been competitors in the past coming into what, all right, Corvette Racing only existed from... 98, 99, but even so, was a a very established and very American team. And I, one thing I, I wondered about you going into that as a Brit, uh, what was that dynamic la- like? Because they didn't have international. All right, Ron was Canadian, yeah. but you, they did not have international drivers. No, they didn't. And uh, you, you know, I think the dynamic was that we we all sort of. 
changed a little and, and, and moved around and adjusted. And, you know, whether that was the team adjusting to me or me adjusting to the team. Um, and they realized that if we could work well together, that we were going to end up winning. And, mm. that, you, you know, and again, that was with getting the likes of Olivier to come into the team, you know, was the likes of Jan then joining us. Um, you know, in, in, in the later years, it's been, you know, getting the likes of Antonio in and, you know, Marcel and Mike Rockefeller. But there's been many other drivers along the way, Max Pappis, that again have all been integrated into the team and it's worked very well. And, you know, I, I suppose that they, they, they look at that and, and they, they try and choose the personalities and the people that they feel are going to work. And they, they also look to take the talent away from their competitors. And who's making those decisions? Doug Feehan, programme manager, is a, a politician within GM par excellence. Just keeping it getting funded every year is something that would not would take any three normal people to do. Gary Pratt is a force of nature, yeah. quietly spoken man. Difficult to get two words out of him. Most people have, have never even heard him speak. Right. But he drives that team. Which which one of those two do you think has the most influence in how the team gels? You know, I think that um, you know Doug definitely has a massive influence about how the drivers are chosen and, and you know the people of the, the personalities and the way that we all function together and you know he, he sort of the buck stops with him um, you know but Gary is very watchful and mindful and understanding how a race team should function and understanding and, and trying to get across to the drivers you know just to do the simple things right we don't have to get this we don't have to be super crazy massively over the top with the setup or we don't have to try and, and, and delve too deeply into things. We just need to do the simple things well and execute properly and try not to overthink it too much. And, um, you know, Gary's been the, the big, huge driving force behind that, just trying to execute properly. In the, in, in, in the more recent past, you, you know, there's, there has been... Um, other people adding into that, you know, the likes of Doug Louth, uh, the, the, the chief sort of technical man from uh, from Pratt Miller and Corvette Racing, um, is a sort of technical director, let's say. Um, and now, you know, Ben Johnson, who who sort of effectively runs the team uh, now with, with Gary, and um, you know, all of those people are are in that decision making process, and so, you know. They've got it very right, I think, in the past. And, uh, you know, I, I think that they've got still making the smart decisions, the right decisions, and they're, they're looking to the future and what they can be doing. Um, and, you know, uh, let's, see, let's see what next year brings. You, if we go back to the start of 2003, you've had two seasons as being part of the team, uh, one full season. You, you're going to be team leader. Um, what does that mean to a, a lad from the middle of England for whom seeing a Corvette is not like talking to people about Corvettes over here. I knew Corvettes from drag racing. My cousin had one. But it was, it was a thing that you never saw back in the UK, certainly not in the northeast of England. Can't imagine it was any different in Northamptonshire. W- were you aware of the, the historical importance of Corvette and indeed the historical importance of Corvette going racing with a works team which had never happened before GM had reeled against it when you got there and, 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 and was there anything if you didn't was there anything that sort of focused your mind on that when you saw America's sports car baby you know that's that is that is the absolute truth yeah I mean I suppose you know when I look at it I hadn't really seen that much of Corvette racing or a Corvette racing in, in, in when I you know back in the, in the UK you know living in Northamptonshire you know it wasn't necessarily like let's say a Ferrari or a Porsche or an Aston Martin but then you we saw over that sort of 2002 2003 2004 seasons that the way that Corvette racing grew and it was this sort of beast that just seemed to grow and grow and grow and have its own sort of force behind it whether it was the you know the tracks that we were going to and the places that we were racing and the fans that were coming along to watch it the 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 passion that those people had for the car 
and the fact that Corvette had never had a factory team before. Now there was this this sort of huge, uh, you know, big yellow, two big yellow monsters roaring around the track, <laughs> and, and, and people could really focus in in on and and and, and get a. a you know, really bond with. And I remember the car corrals. I'd never seen anything like it. I, you know, when I came to the states in '99 and, and '98, uh, '99 for the first runnings of Petit and the first race series, I'd, I, you know, there were car corrals. We didn't see that in the UK so much, but I'd seen nothing like what happened, how it exploded from the early 2000s, and particularly with Corvettes. And of course, in 2004, when you are team leader, you go on to win Le Mans. And you find out that Corvette's got a massive international following as well, because the French love Corvette. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, then you start seeing some of the, 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 the history of Corvette, you know, being at Le Mans and those first early years when they were there. And, and you know, the likes of John Finch and, 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 and others who had, who had raced and competed there. And then you sort of see how you were turning up there as in the factory team you know someone a team that the that the ACO embraced and that this uh, you know they were became it was very quickly becoming a real cornerstone of the race at Le Mans yes. and that uh, you know people loved it you know the, the, here was America's sports car competing um at Le Mans in the 24 hours and on the international stage and going up against the likes of uh, Ferrari or Viper or Celine and and regularly beating them and regularly winning and and uh, you know Le Mans to me was you know a dream it was a race that I'd always wanted to go and compete at but it, it, it felt so far away you know almost out of reach for so many years and then all of a sudden I was there driving for a for a factory team and winning and standing on the top step when when did you become aware of the Le Mans 24 hours when Jag were winning when Jag were winning yeah. in the 80s you know that was that was really when the silk cut Jags were, were, were winning you know when Andy Wallace won yeah. when, that was the year yeah, yeah that, that I, I suppose it really sort of got it on the map for me and um then I sort of uh, you, you go back and you you look back th- through you know certain whether Autosport or other magazines that I would be getting, you know you remember it you sort of see it but you weren't necessarily focused on it because you were so Formula One focused, and uh, you know it just was it was that special event that happened in the middle of June and that was you know amazing and great but you never really knew what those teams did for the rest, the rest of the year. Yeah. You had no clue. You just It was just, oh, it's Miller Juno. Oh, it's Le Mans. Oh, it's great. Let's watch that. Fantastic. It's on the TV. Great. Turn it on. And and and, uh, um, and so then when I started to go go there myself and compete, it was this huge thing. And, and uh, you know, I think my father was just wide-eyed himself and you know my whole family was you know coming along to it and couldn't quite believe that I was competing in it and um you know I had one of them I had my name on the side of one of the cars that was competing in such a great race and 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 I've, I've thought about it in exactly the same way every year that I pinch myself that I'm there and I'm competing and that I'm part of it does it compare with anything else I mean include up to and including Formula One in terms of the event with a capital E. Forget about how difficult or easy the race is, how technical or not the racetrack is, because different drivers will tell you different things uh, about that, and, and I haven't driven round it, so I don't know. But as an event, as a happening, as you know, walking out into that pit lane on race day morning with the grandstands full, how, how does that compare with anything else that you've that you've done, even up to and including the the Formula One circus? I mean, I suppose when you when you look at it. It is one of the biggest motorsport events in the world period. And, um, you know, whether you're looking at comparing it to, say, the Indy 500 or whether you're looking to compare it against the Monaco Grand Prix or, I don't know, you know, there's very few other motorsport events that generate that sort of fan engagement and um, the atmosphere, that feeling, that sort of grandeur that they managed to sort of that passion that the ACO and the French in particular managed to generate around that event year in year out and 
you know it make every time you walk on the on on the pit lane in in, in onto the, the the pit lane there and, and and out onto the grid for the start of the race the hair stand up on the back of your neck you know yeah. you feel that it's it's that special moment that real electric feeling that you just um you can't describe a lot of the time and uh you know i i, I get goosebumps every time I, I i go there and so and you know i've this is sort of 17 years i've done it for now and and uh you know i'm i'm, I'm again you know like i say i'm pinching myself each time i go back there um, there's a few people exactly the same, and there's one sitting right over here, you as well. Um, so 2004, then all that said, you go there and you just go and win the damn thing. And you yeah, know, was, was it one of those races that you knew everything was going to go right, or was it just all of a sudden, oh my god, I've just won the 24 Hours of Le Mans? No, it was actually one of the races where everything went wrong. I mean, our class. Uh, just wanted to crash relentlessly <laughs> you know we had so many incidents and accidents there were we were getting through into the night and we'd already done one full set of bodywork on our car the other car had had a crash gone off at uh, i think uh, the porsche curves um they'd got on the radio to johnny oh in the th- in the 63 car saying johnny you cannot go off the track again nobody in your car can crack we do not have any more spares there was a mountain of bodywork in the tent behind broken bodywork broken bodywork <laughs> you know huge mountain of it and the team were just chewing their nails to the bone sort of thinking where what, what are we going to do next if when the next guy goes off what's going to happen you know how, how are we going to fix this and um you know, I'd been off. I'd been through the gravel trap at the first chicane. Um, they'd just changed uh, the nose on the car. And then I got caught up in something else that happened. And they had to change the nose again. We then had another incident in the morning. I think uh, Jan got turned around by Jamie Davies in the... Or got involved with something with Jamie in the in, in the Audi at the, at the Ford chicane. The car had to come back in. And at this point, we had run out. And so they were there was a show car down in the chevrolet hospitality now down near by the ford uh fortune canes and um corvette corner is, is now yeah 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 corvette corner yeah and um we um the mechanics were stripping off the no. bodywork off of the show car and our car ended up finishing the race no, with uh with the rear uh, with the rear deck of the show car and uh, there was one other part that came off the show car so our car could get to the finish and we ended up winning but i mean we were not alone um you know the the ferraris were crashing as well it just seemed like there was this huge crash fest and it was almost like nobody really wanted to win it you know it was when you when you think about how many times our car went off the sister car went off the ferrari went off i think the ferrari had been rebuilt in in practice i think thomas mm-hmm. had crashed it mm-hmm. thomas enger and uh, i think fehan was head in hands Gary Pratt was just standing there shaking his head all of the drivers just going you know I just want to find one that doesn't go off the road I don't know what it was about that 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 particular weekend but it was uh, it just seemed relentless but we were the almost like the last one standing and we came through winning and it was you know, it was amazing you know it was amazing to stand there on the top step but it, it was very much a sort of a how, how, how did we end up here moment you know did, can you take I was going to say did you take it all in can you take it all in at your first Le Mans I've spoken to to other drivers who say I wish I'd taken more of it in my first time most drivers don't win it five times as you have in fairness Oliver mm-hmm. um, which is frankly just greedy um, <laughs> but is it possible to take it in or is it just an assault on the senses there is an awful lot that's going on you know you 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 are sort of you know that you it's a very special moment and you know that you're trying to sort of take take it in as best you possibly can but it's a bit of a whirlwind and uh you know they're they're throwing you out there on on, onto the podium and and you know you're unbelievably tired you're you're emotionally and physically just exhausted um, yes, you're elated, and the, the, the adrenaline is sort of really pumping again. But you keep getting hit by these big waves of fatigue. Mm. Um, you're wanting to celebrate massively with your with your teammate and your team, uh, but you, you regularly 
uh, find yourself, uh, you know, you you get a couple of minutes to yourself, and you and, and you might just sort of sit down and try and reflect on it, and then you end up finding that you're asleep, and that you're, you know, you're somebody sort of slapping you around the face and trying to get you get you going again. Um, so yeah, it's every time that I've been up there, I've wanted to try and relish it and 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 remember that moment, and you do, um, you do remember it, but it it, it is uh, sometimes. You know, now I, I have to say that some of the years have kind of like blurred a little bit together. Yeah. Um, you know, the last the, the last victory, you know, you know, in 2015 is obviously still very fresh in my mind. Um, but going back, you know, over 10 years now, 2004, 2005, 2006, you know, it's it's uh, you know, you're trying to pick out, OK, which one was four, which one was five, which yes. one was six. So, yes. um, you know, it, it's still very special an amazing amazing feeling to stand up there um and you st- i know i've stood up there with some fantastic teammates mm. and we've beaten some amazing yes. amazing teams and drivers and, and and people and yeah it's 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 been exceptional we're with ollie govan uh, it's a long one here on the radio show limited network ollie from corvette racing uh yardley hastings uh, finest sports car driver uh, was the moniker that we gave you a few years ago that relatively rural lifestyle that you have, uh, is that the essential counterpoint to the travelling, to the racing, to everything else that is your life at 180 miles an hour and Helena the, and the kids' essential ground anchors, if you will? Yeah, without a doubt. You know, I've, um, you know, when I first started with Corvette, um, there was many people sort of saying, okay, what are you going to do? Are you going to move to the US? Are you going to, mm. are you doing d- different things? You know, you're doing a lot of traveling. Did you consider that moving to the US? Yeah, we, we did. And, and, um, you know, 2004, uh, we came out for 10 weeks to the United States and, um, I, I brought Helen and my two children at the time, uh, Lily and Isaac and, um, Fergus wasn't, wasn't around then, but, uh, uh, he uh, he arrived in 2005, and 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 so those 10 weeks, um, we set out, you know, a goal and what we were going to try and how we were going to be, and and but even before we left, you know, stuff was happening that was sort of saying, no, you need mm. to still, your family still needs to be based back in the UK. We had, you know. A, Helen's very best friend. She was diagnosed with breast cancer. We had, my mother became terribly ill, and and uh, she had to have emergency treatment when she came over to see me here in the U, in the US. And and then we had just we had problems with the house we were in. We had uh, leakages and breakages and and all, all kinds of stuff. But the rental car we had got crashed into. We, we we Helen was coming to the track, and there was numerous things that were happening at the racetrack. You know, including golf carts and and fire engines fire trucks and and uh visits to ambulances coming to hotels and uh so car- you, do you reckon this was karma then was this the was this the universe seeing family govern stay in yardley hastings <laughs> yes a lot of people did say that and a number of people said to us helen could write a book about the 10 weeks that you were in the united states and just so many things just happened and maybe i should be interviewing her yeah well maybe you should <laughs> maybe you should I, I, I mean the 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 golf buggy incident um at lime rock um which involved helen and my two children and robin pratt and the fact that Robin Pratt ended up, ended up underneath the golf cart. Robin is uh, Gary Pratt's wife, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, you, I won't go into the full details of it, but Robin did end up underneath the golf cart, and you know, it was um, you know just one of those moments that we just wanted the ground to sort of swallow you up, and 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 it was just such a a, a terrible moment, and and uh, fortunately. Robin wasn't badly injured, but, you know, you just, uh, it was... Um, Let me just say again, this is the boss's wife we're talking it's, about. It's, it. She wasn't badly injured, it was all minor injuries. That's all right, we can brush that off. It, I, was, I, I, was, I was just thinking, there's no way I'm going to keep my job now, that's it, I'm done. Hang on, I've had this conversation with you before. Yes. Formula One drive, uh, Formula One pace car driver, oh, I've stuffed it. Oh, no, I'm never going to keep, I'm never going to drive again. And here you are again with the boss's, the boss's yeah. wife underneath the golf cart. Yes, I mean, it was... Uh... <laughs> It was really quite, uh, quite, quite bad, and um, 
yeah. So, um, you know, at the end of 2004, um, I think uh, Helen and I sort of both decided that they would stay back in the UK mm. and I would commute backwards and forwards. And at the time, I was with spending a lot of time with uh, James Weaver and Andy Wallace. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were doing... They were just doing that. They were commuting backwards and forwards. You know, Andy was driving a lot for Crawford uh, and, and also for Dyson. And, and James was obviously driving for Dyson Racing. And, and uh, you know, so over those next two, three, four years, uh, we developed a great relationship. Uh, we had a lot of fun flying backwards and forwards. Uh, we of, often flew, you know, on the same flights and booked our sort of schedules together. And it was it was fantastic fun. Um but then, you know, James retired and then, you know, Andy was, was not far behind. And, and, and so, and then, you know, you sort of, you develop your own routine and own way of doing it. But definitely the, the traveling is, is something that goes with it. And you yeah. know, you know that it's yourself, so, yeah. you know, it's an, it's a necessary evil, you know, that it's something you just have to do. And, um, but, you know, it's the way that I function, the way that I work and, and living back in, in Northamptonshire, um, you know, it is huge, hugely grounding for me. Um, the children ha- had a wonderful school there in the village that we lived at, um, and that they, uh, they, they, you know, we loved the, the environment that we could bring our children up in, and it was uh, perfect for us. A lot of times, people ask me about motivation, drivers' motivation, um, when the competition is intense. I can never imagine it's it's a problem. Even when things aren't going well, there's another race, and when the checkered flag drops that and the green flag's getting ready for the next one, you're all on the same playing field again. So that I can understand. There was a few years in the American Le Mans series where Corvette were effectively racing themselves in their category. And yet we saw some great races between the two cars at that point. How did you and how did the team manage to keep up that intensity? I remember at, uh, I think it was mid-Ohio, banging into each other, coming out of the, the pit lane, uh, uh, which uh, I also remember Doug Fayan having his head in his hands, but realising it was great three at there. H- how do you get yourselves up for that when there isn't that kind of intensity of, of competition, but there's a, still a job to be done, Ollie? Yeah, I mean that was that was a pretty tough period, um, but we're all racing drivers at heart, and we're all you know massively competitive, and we're you know the, one of the first people you want to beat is your teammates mm. and, and and the sister car, and and uh, so having that rivalry uh, with the other car uh, was was still you know kept you very focused. I don't, I'm, you know, at times it wasn't always the healthiest you you know it was there was can be destructive can't it yeah there was periods where you know drivers were going against one another and 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 you know it it got it got quite I think very difficult for the likes of Doug and, and and Gary to manage but we got through that 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 period and we could see that 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 on the horizon there was you know a fantastic opportunity to race against a number of manufacturers in GT2 at that at that time, mm-hmm. which then morphed into GTLM, yeah. as we currently are. And, um, y- you know, all of a sudden that door was kicked open and we're now competing against, you know, not just two cars or three cars in our class. It was then 10, 11, 12, yeah. 15 cars. Yeah. And, and it got spectacular. And, and it, it was almost like we had we're a bit of a caged animal and that we we just were released and that we just wanted just to uh, go at it as hard as we possibly could and uh, yes that that sort of 2008 2009 period were were tough and hard and we weren't necessarily we were very focused inwards um you know but we soon managed to redirect that that sort of radar onto attacking and competing against all of that competition, whether it was against Porsche or Ferrari or, mm. or who, Aston Martin, whoever it was, and, and we managed to really hit the ground running. Uh, and through that time, and it's interesting you say that, there was Le Mans, of course. There was always Le Mans, which was you guys going up against everyone else. And there was some success in those years. And there was this exceptional rivalry. We talked about it last time, but I'd, I'd, I'd like to revisit it. Everybody talks about the Ford and Ferrari rivalry at Le Mans that was of a different age yeah. but Aston Martin and Corvette racing 
Aston Martin Racing and Corvette Racing is is every bit, if not more, impressive from my point of view because of the longevity of it. It was a, a couple or three years for Ford and Ferrari in the in the sixties. This is more than a decade's worth mm. of intense rivalry. A rivalry, as we said in the last interview, that has such a degree of respect between not just the drivers, not just the management, but the mechanics who do that almost ice hockey style handshake before every Le Mans, which brings a lump to my throat before we even started. Uh, Characterise that for me. Give us a little bit of an insight into what it's been like to be a part of that and continue to be a part of that rivalry because you know a lot of these guys on a personal basis of course yeah I mean it, it, it has been you know spectacular uh, it's been you know sometimes very humbling to be you know in that sort of rivalry and, and, and being part of that uh, I suppose that sort of story and, mm. and um, you know when you you look back at some of the races that we've had and, and, and some of the moments that we've had it's been um it's been pretty crazy. Um, it's been um, sometimes hard to take. It's been sometimes um, yeah, difficult to sort of see some of the results. And, and uh, But there has always been this massive amount of respect between the two teams. And, you know, we were going to, you know, Le Mans in 2005 and 2006. And, you know, I'll, you know, talked about already in the previous interview about the, the bets I was having with George Howard Chapel, mm-hmm. and now at Ford of course yes yeah exactly and um, you know I had a, a bet with him last year at Le Mans um, in 2016 and I had a bet with him again in 2017 <laughs> and um, you know it's it's kind of just a bit of a sort of routine that I've got with him. But is it the same fifty-pound note that's changing hands every time? <laughs> yeah. No, it's definitely a different one. Uh, you should have got the first one signed because for George to even put fifty quid on the table is an extraordinary thing. I mean, he, he, obviously he, he was very quick to hand it over when he lost it. Yeah, yeah. So you know, George has been brilliant and 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 and, and a great character. And um, you know, but when I look at you know how. Uh, you know, Aston Martin have been um, there throughout every Le Mans that we've been part of um, as, as Corvette Racing. You know, since two thousand and five, it's it's been amazing to sort of see, and you know, it kind of this year's race at Le Mans sort of summed it up. Mm. Um, that that sort of relationship that the two teams have. There there was one car from each team. Dicing it out over that last sort of 35, 40 minutes. And it was extraordinary to watch. And, and you know, it wasn't my car, but it was it was the sister car. And, you know, the, the crazy thing was that Aston Martin were only two garages down from us. Uh-huh. And you could hear the cheers from their garage when their car did something well or, or were looking like they were going to pass us. So you could yeah. hear the encouragement coming from their garage. And then you could hear, obviously, the cheering from our garage when the 63 car would get back in front or, or it did something. And, and it was this huge sort of seesaw of emotion and roller coaster of, 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 of shouting and cheering and, you know, sadness or, or joy. Or, um, and, you know, it, it didn't work out for us. Um, and Aston Martin ended up winning the race. And... But, you know, almost within two minutes of the car crossing the line, the guys from Aston Martin were down in our garage shaking everybody's hand. And, you know, it just shows just just fantastic sportsmanship. And, uh, you know, our guys were, were down. Because They'd been beaten, you know, but they respected that they came down and that they, they want that. They want that sort of moment with them and just to sort of shake their hand and say, just been amazing this whole race has been fantastic there's been huge respect between both camps and you kind of want that you know you you feel that that's a really special moment and we don't have that with any other team we race against really? no we don't we just we just do not and and um you know we we've, we've is, that, is that the individuals is that the history of, of the amount of time you've raced against each other it's not a manufactured rivalry it, it it's something that just happened. We mentioned Ford and Ferrari. You could say 
There's the big rivalry between the two brands of Ford and Corvette. Of course there are. Yeah. Leviathans of the automotive industry here. But not, not even with this new rivalry I, with Ford? No, I, I think really it started off with the characters and the people and the personnel that were there at Aston Martin right. in 2005, 2006. You know, the likes of George Howchapel, Woody and others. Um, and, and Drez and, 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 and a number of other people. And that could have kind of set sort of it set it all out laid it all out and um we've never had that same relationship again uh with anyone else i mean rissy are another great team Mm -hmm. that the team do have seem to have a a good connection with um but and maybe ray hall um the bmw team but there's certainly not that chemistry not with many others and and do you think it's the lamont thing as well, Ollie, to yeah. be honest, because yeah. obviously Aston haven't raced here all that time and they haven't no. been here, sadly, in the US and in IMSA for quite some time. But it, it's it's almost like that that meeting of old arch enemies, isn't it, that only yeah. happens at the Super Bowl or at, yeah. at the FA Cup final or at whatever huge event in whatever yeah. sport you follow. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you can... It's hard to put your finger on it completely, um, but, you know, it's just a... A very special relationship, you know, and they have a very healthy respect for what we do and we mm. do with them. And, and uh, you know, it just seems like it's very straightforward. It was a very wistful look on Ollie Gavin's face when he said that. And it is Ollie Gavin we're with. I've got a couple of other areas I want to explore with you, Ollie, before uh, we, we knock this one on the head. Um, We'll do some more about American racing in a moment, but I want to talk about uh, you and your fitness levels. Um, I don't live too far away from you, and there's many a Sunday morning when I've been going down to the farmer's market at Olney that I've seen you pounding the uh, the byways and highways around Northamptonshire. You, you're quite an accomplished uh, long-distance runner. How, how did that start? Did that just come from the fitness thing, or have you always um, been someone who... Has, has liked that that isolation. Well, I I don't know whether I like the isolation. I, I think I actually find it a good way to decompress and, yeah. and to sort of sit there and run along and think about what's happened in a, the past race or you know what's going to happen in the race coming up. And um, I find it a, a, a good way of just sort of you know, de-stressing sometimes. And 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 I I find it relatively easy to run I'm lucky in that way I've got a couple of uncles that, that run have run very well and um, you know I I, um, I just feel that it's my sort of sport and you know I ran this morning in San Francisco and uh, you know I enjoy you know running anything you know from six miles all the way up to sort of 15 or so um, and I've done a number of marathons, and and uh, you know London Marathon a couple, no more than a couple of three times now. Y- yes, I've done the Lon- London Marathon a, a number of times. I think I've done it about seven, really? seven times. And best done, time, done two hours and fifty four. So you know, I, I I wanted to get underneath the three hours, and there, I did, I did the London Marathon in two thousand and nine, and I did I was desperate to get underneath three hours, and I did three, three hours, three hours and ten seconds. Was it ten? I thought it was three or one. No, I did three hours and ten seconds. And the amount of people that I saw after that race, and they said, "Well, why don't you just run a little bit faster?" And I was thinking, <laughs> you know, in the last hundred meters. Yeah, and, and and I was I was thinking, God, do you know how hard this is? And do you know how uh, you know just trying to get underneath th- three hours is is like this just big, it's this big barrier, or this big goal. Uh, sort of that's like people who say hang on a second when you're driving the car and you can't get past the guy in front why don't you just brake a bit later or drive a bit faster yeah it's, I, suppose <laughs> it, I suppose it is a bit like that and, and, and you, you, you end up uh, you, you know that year at, at, at the London Marathon I was running along and, and, and I was coming into that last 500 metres and you can see the, 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 the finish line off in front of you and there's a big clock this is up the mile isn't it yes. right in front of Buckingham Palace absolutely and you can see the clocks sort of counting up and and I'd had a very good starting position for the marathon that year and I was over the line within two seconds of the gun going off and so I knew that what was being shown on the clock was fundamentally my time right. yes you have a chip on your shoe and that, that, that times you accurately but I knew that it was only a couple of seconds right. that I was maybe out and, and different to the clock and so as I'm running up to it I can see that it's 
two hours 59 and 50 seconds and 51 and 52 and then it gets to three hours and the guy on the PA saying ah all these guys running in they're done brilliantly they're all going to be underneath three hours and I'm just going no yeah no I'm not going to be that guy I, I know I've missed it I know I've missed it and I was gutted I was absolutely gutted and uh I knew I had to come back the next year. I knew I had to come back the next year and do it. And so I did everything I possibly could to get everything to line up. Fortunately, the, the schedule's lined up. Mm. And it's always around about Long Beach weekend. Yes. And that year, in 2010, it was the week after Long Beach. Yep. And um, I'd, been, I'd prepped, I'd trained, I'd done so much. And I was really, really ready. And then the volcanic ash eruption oh, happened yes. in Iceland and yes. and and of course that shut down all of northern Europe and it was that I was desperately trying to get home and I was racking my brains and I was going to you got stuck on the west coast didn't you yeah. I got stuck at Kennedy at JFK yeah I mean it was it was it was crazy and I actually got as far as Toronto I don't know how I got into Toronto I got to Toronto and I was desperate to get on a plane and I just needed to get back into Europe. And so I was on the phone and I was trying to sort of messaging Antonio Garcia. Mm-hmm. And because uh, at that point, Madrid was still open. Correct. And so I managed to find a so flight that went from Toronto to Madrid. And then he said, well, come and stay with me for the night. And then we'll see if you can get you out of Madrid and up to Paris. And then mm-hmm. and he was brilliant. He managed to pick me up from the airport, stayed at his house. We then put me on, on the, the next flight from uh, from Madrid to Paris the next morning. Uh, got there, got to Paris, and I got the Eurotunnel back, and then I got into London with a couple of days to spare before the marathon started, so I could sort of get myself back acclimatised. And but it was pretty stressy. Not great prep, I would have thought. No, it wasn't particularly fantastic <laughs> preparation. But I've got an awful lot to thank Antonio for. And um, then I went went to the marathon, and uh, I smashed it, I suppose. In, in 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 reality of of going from, I thought, okay, if I get to doing two hours 59 and 50 seconds that's me done I'm I'm, yeah. I'm happy but I did two hours 54 and I was thrilled and you know I, I and I think that's about the fittest I've ever been are you are you the fastest BRDC member British Racing Drivers Club member around the marathon eh? I was until I think two years ago and then Jensen Button beat me by about by about four minutes I think so uh, I had thought about trying to ramp it all up again to see if I could battle with him but you know I'm not I'm not that young anymore and uh, the marathon training does take it out of you and I went back in 2012 to have another go to see if I could get beat my two two hours 54 and I, I, I ran like an idiot and I, I ate too much and I needed to stop and I just I just did it all wrong and I've harbored you know, thoughts and, and desire to go back and to try and do London again one more time to see if I could get underneath three hours w- once more to get three under three hours, which would be nice. Um, but the schedules aren't lining up at the moment. It always seems that Long Beach is that weekend, and and uh, so I put an entry in for the marathon next year and see if it, see if it comes off and just see if it lines up. Have to watch that. Uh, not a chance you're going to get me to do that. I'll follow you around on my motorcycle. That's uh, that's about as much as I'm going to commit. Well, you can stand there with the pom poms cheering me on if you like, John. Or I'll, I'll have a clock on the back of the motorcycle so that you can you don't have to run. You can pace yourself a little bit better. Um, let, let's go back to the racing to, to wrap this thing up. Talked about the years 08 or 09 when when Corvette didn't have a uh, a lot of, of competition over here and the American Le Mans series was winding down at that point. There was the year or two of uncertainty around the unification of Grand Am and the American Le Mans series and, the, if you will, the rebirth of IMSA mm. and uh, under uh, its new owners at Daytona. And now, how do you, how do you characterise it? How do you feel the paddock is looking, feeling, and I suppose most importantly, how's the racing? Well, I, th- I think it's it's very healthy. I mean, it's it has gone through some difficult sort of formative sort of r- rebirth, uh, growing pains. Growing, yeah, let's yeah. say gr- growing pains. And and but I think on the horizon there is some fantastic and exciting teams coming in. Um, you know, whether that's you know Penske or Yoast, you know, in the prototype 
categories, um, you know, new manufacturers, you know, coming in or coming back to racing in the United States. Uh, you know, there's there's manufacturers that have been in our class um, that have been brilliant and that they're coming with new cars, you know, BMW. Um, and, you know, I think it's a really exciting period uh, for IMSA and the WeatherTech Championship. And we go to some amazing circuits. Mm. So you, you only have to talk to the likes of Nick Tandy or Earl Bamba, who have had a, a whole year of racing the WEC, and they've been driving one of the best cars in the world. Oh, God, they miss racing here. Yeah. They really, really miss it. They're just desperate to come back. Did, did you harbour any hopes of, of getting a, a prototype drive with the Corvette in the Grand Am days, of course, and, and you know, there's the Cadillac now, which is, which is GM and that, you know, the prototype category here, combining DPI and LMP2 is, is super competitive. People announcing this week that they're going to be in there. There's going to be two or three, at least more cars next year. Yeah. I mean, I I suppose, you know, seven or eight years ago, I would have looked at it. I, I was sort of looking at it. I was talking to, you know, the guys at GM about what the options were, but you know, once the Cadillac program finished, that was running in sort of two thousand one, two, three, mm. you know, the options were sort of very limited. And then you know there was the DP car that came along, and then there was talk at one point of Corvette actually yeah. possibly stepping up. But I think that there was there was there was some definite plans. There was there was wind tunnel models and mm-hmm. bits and pieces that were done. And for this us. was very a Corvette. Uh, it on a prototype uh, so well uh, lmp1 car L- yeah it was a, it was an lmp1 car yeah. and and that that then never really took off and then then the dp car then was it sort of morphed into the dp car mm. and um you know so that was maybe a, a slightly a missed opportunity maybe but i mean i've just had such an amazing time driving for corvette racing and each year has been different each year has been a brand new challenge up against different machinery and mm. different competitors who are driving those cars and also sometimes different teammates. And, uh, you know, I've I had a long period, a long stretch driving with Olivier, and now I've had a nice, long, stable stretch driving with Tommy, which I hope continues for mm. another number of years. And, you know, each time that I've, I've had those good, stable teammates and relationships – things have gone well and we've had yeah. success and 2016 last year was it was was an amazing year you know our win at daytona was just extraordinary and and uh, you know uh, i will never ever forget that finish um you know tommy's drive at sebring in in 16 was just monumental and he really won us that whole race you know our victory to get the 100th win at lime rock was just uh, just amazing just to, to be able to to do that and to be the guy behind the wheel to take that car over the line um, I think that was my forty forty seventh win with the team. Uh, I've I've now got forty nine. I'm one away from fifty um, in, in in the wins with the team, and um, you know I, I'm just chomping at the bit to try and get that fiftieth win and and uh, be standing up there on the top step again. Fantastic career! Thank you for sharing it with us. Um, I'd like to finish by looking forward slightly. You've been around this sport for quite a long time. Uh, you've seen the GT classes develop and right now we seem to be in a, an upward spiral again in GT, although bizarrely not so much in, in prototypes. But what we are seeing are increasingly almost GT prototypes being built. Mm. How long can Corvette, with a, a genuine iteration of their streetcar, be competitive against the special cars for GT, obviously. It was designed to go in when Le Mans, it did. Um, it's within the rules. I'm not casting any aspersions whatsoever, but clearly that comes from a different philosophy from the cars that are built in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and that you guys race through Gary Pratt and, and Corvette Racing. How long can Corvette continue to be clever, to be engineering the kind of success with that commitment to excellence that you were talking about earlier on and that commitment to delivering and executing? Well, I think they will continue for as long as they're building a Corvette at Bowling Green, Kentucky. And, uh, you know, they have a great, strong desire to race what they make. And I can't really see there being 
any prototype car that Corvette make, um, you know, it will be as the road car is. Um, mm. That's a very strong feeling from within the manufacturer. And, you know, we've even seen Porsche recently do something and I never thought would happen, yeah. which is moving the engine from the back to the middle of, yeah. a, of a 911 just for racing. Yeah, and, 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 you know, some manufacturers feel that they need to do that. But I really don't think that Corvette will. And I, and I think that's what balanced performance is for. Right, yeah. you, you know, BOP is there for a reason. It's yeah. to try and balance out the differences between those cars. And, in, and, you know, when you look at the Ford, you know it's, it's so efficient. It's got such a tiny little frontal area. Um, and the, it, it, yeah, for Le Mans and for certain events and races, it really does have a, a nice advantage. But they're not Corvette racing. They are not the the organisational um, wizardry that that you know Gary Pratt and, and Ben Johnson and all of those guys managed to p- pull out of the hat every single weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that ability to think work problems uh understand what they're going to need to do to get the car to the front to win the race and to be there at the end of the race and and you know through all of these i don't know last six seven eight years i can't really think that we've ever really had the fastest car (laughs) but we've had the best team and we've we have won races and championships from delivering and executing and by being the best. And, you know, so many of the teams in this championship come in and they look to us. They look at what we've achieved and how we execute week in, week out. And we do make mistakes. You know, there are, there are you know, we are not perfect by any means. But I think we do learn from our mistakes and we do, we make the least mistakes of everyone. And, and you know, that's one of the reasons why there is a car from our team usually running at the front. And right now... You know, the three car in the GTLM class is leading the championship, much like we were last year. And I think since 2012, I think we have been challenging for a championship or winning a championship every single year. And in our class, I think that is pretty astonishing. Well, there's not many manufacturers in any class of racing who can say that. Um, Ollie, it's been a, a cracking at times, just sitting talking to you again. I thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, let's hope that in five years' time we can add another hour or so to Ollie Gavin's long ones. Do you still have the same passion for it as you did when you first started racing? What, what's, what's changed? What's better? What's different? What's worse? I mean, I do still have a great passion for it, and uh, you know, I, uh, I've got great desire for racing. Um, I suppose you just become a bit wiser. You sit there and analyse things and, 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 and look at things maybe a little, a little bit less emotionally. Um, you maybe don't get so spun up so easily about stuff and go, OK, I kind of know what's going to happen here now. I kind of you can read things just that little bit better, a little bit wiser on stuff. Um, but, you know, I just always come to the racetrack and I'm excited. I'm just wanting to know you know what's going to happen here how the how the track's going to be and what's the car going to feel like and where's our competition going to be and you know you just get that buzz is there a three-hour barrier still is there one more thing that ollie gavin has to do in his racing career one more box to tick i mean there's there's always there's always another race that you 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 want to win I mean, the the one thing that I would genuinely love to do and it would be just amazing is if I could get number six at Le Mans. And, um, you know, I've, I've got five victories there. That is just amazing. I've been so lucky to drive for such a wonderful team. But to get six victories there, we'd like cap it all off. We'd go, okay, right. I've, I can almost sort of say, okay, I feel that I've really achieved something very, very special. Bathurst? Spa, you've raced in in those the other big races around the world. Yes, I mean they they do carry a, 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 you know amazing amount of kudos, uh, a, you know great satisfaction if you end up standing up there on the podium. But nothing has the same feeling. Uh, doesn't drive me anywhere near the same as Le Mans. I mean Le Mans really is just so special, and. And I can't put my finger on what it is. You know, it's just, it's just that just amazing feeling when you walk out there into the pit lane and onto the start line and, you know, that sort of real ambiance that 
the ACO managed to generate each year. Is it partially because you're a marathon runner and not a sprinter? It might be that. Yeah, it might. It might be that. You know, I. I but I just think there's just so much sort of grandeur and 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 sort of emotion in that race that's just doesn't get me going no other race really gets me going like that one and, and uh, it's very special this program is a radio show limited production tell your friends there's more at radiolamont.com